Welcome to Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude toward religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, was teaching pastor at a mega church, and was an executive coach. But now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. Losing My Religion. That was the title of a book written in 2009 with this subtitle, How I Lost My Faith Reporting Religion in America and Found Unexpected Peace. It was a great read. It ended up being the atheist book of the year and certainly one of my favorites. It was well written, a fast read, thoughtful, and seemingly quite authentic. I'd love to have the author, William Lobdell, on this show sometime, but let me ruin the plot of the book so you can buy something more encouraging. After positive and apparently life-changing experiences with authentic evangelical men, Lobdell gave his life to Christ. Then, after being one of the key people to really explode the news stories about sex abuse replete in the Roman Catholic priesthood, he was overwhelmed by the pain of the victims and concluded, no good God would allow that. This world is out of control, quite incompatible with any notion of a benign deity. I bring this up today, not to jump into the field of apologetics and refute the arguments of Lobdell, which are really just another rendition of the problem of evil, but rather to remember at Church Hurts and that for many people, the hurt of church is quite often located specifically at the intersection between clergy and congregation. Two years ago, Forbes listed clergy in the, among the eighth most trusted professions right beneath judges, which I remind you are usually attorneys, and right above auto mechanics. Imagine. The World Economic Forum in 2018 found that clergy weren't even in the top ten. Pastors, ministers, priests, preachers, call them whatever you want. They are key to our perceptions of what's good and bad of the church today and in our personal experiences. And I think it's worth another look to get, the, to, get to that we have a specialist in this field. And he uh, kind of makes him a scary dude because he helps people match pastors and congregations. And, and you know, Sam Hamster, I just want to welcome you to Church Hurts and to help us figure some of this out. It's great to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. You know, Sam, um, is it crass to, to say you're really a headhunter to match pastors? <laughs> and church? Can you confirm or deny that? You know, and how did you end up being in such a questionable profession? Uh, <laughs> a headhunter. I guess that would be the, the, the layperson's term. Or, I, I'm more of a matchmaker, I think more of a matchmaker between a pastor and a people 
And so it's, you know, you're not, I'm not just trying to fill a position, but I'm trying to help churches discover the pastor that would serve them best at a particular time and place. And it's been a real, real joy for me. So I'm, I'm guessing that really kind of means you probably know where the bodies are buried. And, and tell us why you resonate, even with the title of this show, Church Hurts And. You know, you're, a, you're an insider. You're a graduate of Northern Seminary. You know, I made fun of the Dutch, you know, a couple of weeks ago on this show. And so I'm repenting by having you here. You're, you're so Dutch. Why do you relate to Church Hurts And? And don't sugarcoat it. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I went into the ministry at a pretty young age. I, I started back in 79. I think I was, that would have made me 24 years old. I took a part-time gig at a church that was really struggling, about 30 people. You know, they gave me the parsonage. They gave me a freezer full of meat. You know, I was in a rural <laughs> environment. And uh, they gave me 100 bucks a week and, and had me preach twice a Sunday and do this and do that. And, you know, you go into that environment kind of idealistic. It's not like the uh, military, right? When, when, you, when you go into the military, they put you through boot camp. They put you through hell, basically, right? Because they want you to experience the worst. Isn't that what seminary was? Supposed to be boot camp for ministers, right? No, no, because they never tell you how lousy it is. They, don't, they never tell you how <laughs> people are going to hate you, right? That... Mm. Uh, my wife always says they love me, but they hate you. It's uh, <laughs> so I, you, know, you go into a church and you do what God's called you to do, and the, the church begins to flourish, and then all of a sudden people get up in arms and they start attacking you. It's just crazy. They attack your your motives, like you're in it. One person told me I was in the ministry for the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, people. Th- you know, as soon as you said that, because. I have this sympathy for pastors because I was one for so yeah, many years. Yeah. You know, when you mentioned having the parsonage, I just went, oh, my. You know, that was the popular perception of many, many people, um, more so, I think, in years gone by. But the pastor, like, oh, does he have it good? He has the parsonage. and yeah. He's living for free. Right. Not realizing the church is just collecting the money on that as the asset grows and the ministry right. is you know, nailed when he gets older, but that was one one perspective. But you know, the degree of you were you were you know bushy tailed, bright eyed, out of seminary, forty people, and what happened? I bet it grew. Yeah, it you know it was a wonderful thing. In five years, I think we started with like thirty five, forty people, and five years we're worshiping two hundred, two twenty. Uh, it was a crazy thing. It's just a crazy thing. Early on in my ministry, I had a funeral with uh, a young 17-year-old kid. And when you're in a small town and you do a, a funeral for a young person, you meet everybody, right? So all of a sudden, I'm the big man on campus. You know, wherever I go, people recognize me. You know, I was the pastor of the funeral. And we just started connecting with people. People started coming in. But then, you know, Five years into it, half of the original people, kind of the stakeholders, right? They, they, they lost their voice, and so they weren't as influential as they once were. And they began to take it out on me, and they thought, you know, I need to get out of here. And so they, they made great steps. I mean, they went to the denomination to have me removed from the ministry. They said I wasn't fit to be a pastor. 
Isn't that what we run into a lot with people who aren't? I mean, you were born into it, right? You're Dutch, so yeah. you were born mm -hmm. into the Reformed, rich Reformed tradition. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the size of church. The so people here in Orange County, and this is OC Doc Radio, so people here, a church of 200 is what meets in a, um, you know, any rented facility they could get. Mm -hmm. I went to the mayor of Irvine one time and was talking about um, buying some property for a church. And she was talking about the fact that you just uh, simply wouldn't expect to have a building with anything, you know, if you're only 500 people. Right. So right. we have a yeah. size issue. But here you are, and you're talking about stakeholders losing it, and other people who just are checking out church, they're like, that's the thing. I go to church. I don't want the power thing. And people smell that whether or not you know you put it in the bulletin or say hey we're having struggles people smell that tension and they don't go to church for that do they yeah and they they get out of it they i think that's part of the reason why the mega church is popular is that people are tired of the politics of the church and so they can go to a big church and get lost and they can they can participate in ministry but they don't have to get involved in the the politics of the thing and so it's it's tough in the smaller churches. Uh, if if you have a core group of people who want you out, man, they can make life miserable for you. I hear people are coming to you a church. The pastor's left for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and I have the contention that people don't leave most jobs, let alone pastoral jobs, uh, because things are going so well. So they need help finding the right person. There may be a little humility in the congregation mm -hmm. saying, how do we get the right person? The congregation's thinking, well, we don't want to make that mistake again. Mm -hmm. Or they're thinking, how are we going to survive without this wonderful pastor who mm -hmm. someone drove out? Or they're sighing a big sigh of relief. God, we have a new chance. Tell me what it's like going in. Because most people never think a headhunter for churches. Really. <laughs> and most churches aren't smart enough to use one if they're smaller. So tell us about that. Well, it used to be the churches were uh, like McDonald's. So in, like in a Dutch church, wherever you went in, in the United States, the church was the same. It was the same. The only difference was the franchise manager, i.e. the pastor. And pastors moved around just like franchise managers do. You know, you start in a small franchise, and then five years later, you work your way up. And you, But that whole system was built on a homogenous culture, right? So it works in a homogenous culture where everybody's trained at McDonald's Corporation, and the menu is the same wherever you go. But now, I mean, the pastors are trained all over the place. Churches are different. And so now this idea of matching people to pastors gets more difficult, especially because neither the people or pastors typically have good self-awareness, right? They're, none hey, of us. Get, yeah, get, get into that a little bit. What do you well, mean? Neither, you know, we're all like goldfish, right? It's hard to get out of the bowl and see ourselves. And so congregations may think, you know, couple of extremes they may think they're god's greatest gift to humanity and you know every pastor is going to want to come here or they may just be beat up and think who is going to come here we're just a slowly small church of 50 people and so dependent on the situation you need to kind of speak truth into their lives right so for those who are 
who are struggling with low self-esteem, I said, well, last I heard, the, Bi the Bible says you're the bride of Christ. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You're the bride. You know, start looking in the mirror. You're the bride. And then for others, you kind of got to bring them down. And same with pastors. Pastors, I haven't met a pastor yet. Well, I've maybe met a couple. But most pastors think they're good preachers. <laughs> Isn't that an illusion? Yeah. I mean, we all think we're God's gift to the pulpit. And it's like, okay, so no. Uh, no, you're not. You're you know, on a scale of one to 10, maybe you're a five, but you know, five might work in this situation, mm. right? It may work in this situation because some other things are maybe more important. So it is, it's, you know, ethnography is what they call it these days, right? I mean, I've been doing it intuitively for years. You have too, but you go into a situation and you kind of got to read the tea leaves and kind of exegete the culture Okay, so let's talk about that culture for a minute. I'm tempted to get down the side roads of talking about how you have some preachers who are great preachers and some who are great leaders and some who are good administrators. And But I, I think most people are kind of, they get that. But tell me about the different kind of churches you go into because sometimes you really are going into what I would call pastor-killing churches. I mean, I'd, if I was you, I'd want to go in you know, and become Kevorkian, you know, and just say, you know, someone needs to put you guys to sleep really quickly because you're hurting people. Yeah, I remember going to one church, actually out your way. You know, so I'm looking at the track record. I said, man, the pastors leave here about every three to five years. What's going on? That's unusual for the Reformed Church. And um, one guy says, well, truth be told, um, uh, most of the pastors left because of one person. And I said, well, have you dealt with that? I mean, that's the elephant in the room. Have Were you they dealt? rich? No, no, it was just, you know, people just, you know, they value peace at all costs, right? They, they don't value wanting to be the best they can be. And I guess that's one of the things I see in the churches. When you get into a church, you can see if they put up with with toxic people or not. Yeah, that I mean, that is, though, I don't care where you are, um, in the workplace, in a big family environment, that toxicity, it can come from the pastor or it can come from within the congregation. Yes, yes. And I assume you have to do that elephant in the room thing, and some people aren't going to like you for it, right? Yeah, so typically, you know, I'll... We'll try to identify that elephant in the room, and then we'll try to develop a strategy to rectify the issue, and then make sure that the leader, congregational leadership does it before the next pastor comes. So we like to make sure the table is set for the pastor to have a nice clean ride for about a year. Mm -hmm. And so some stuff, you know, sometimes it's a staff person, right, not doing the job. And I remember talking to the congregation leaders. says, how long have you known that this staff person hasn't been doing the job? I said, well, about five years. <laughs> said, then why haven't you dealt with it? Right, right. I mean, come on. Hey, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you one, and then I want to bring Paul in here, because he, he's really going to have a different take at this, coming at it from a Roman Catholic experience. But I went to one church. 
it was like yours. It was 40 people in a school cafeteria, and that included, yeah. you count bugs on the wall. When oh, yeah, you count everybody, yeah. And they had been around for a couple of years, and they desperately wanted to get somebody in there. And, and they had 65 applications to be the church planter of this of this place. Wow. And I wasn't one of them, but somebody said, hey, you ought to call, you know, John Bash. And so I get a call out of the blue from these people, and, and uh I, they were, it was divided. The search committee was divided. Um, oh. You know, there were those who wanted me, then there were those who wanted another guy, and those who wanted another one. And basically, they ended up calling me and saying, you're the one that's going to get us from where we are to where we want to go. We don't like you the best. Right, <laughs> you know? right. And, and, you know, the church grew like a weed, but some of those people that really didn't like me the best, they still didn't like me two years later. And they were mm -hmm. still, you know, shaking mm -hmm. their heads. Mm -hmm. How do you, don't they put you in the position to try to figure that out? How do you make that happen? And they all think it's just going to go smoothly, right? Yeah, they do. Um, I was talking to a pastor last week, and um, I finally said, you know, churches don't want to grow. Mm. They don't want to grow numerically because um, it upsets the status quo. So they may be in survival mode, and a lot of churches are in survival mode, right? And um, where their, their vision of the future is a replication of the past. And so they just, um, they'll take any warm body they mm -hmm. can get when they're in survival mode. But they don't, want, they don't want to grow too much where they lose their place at the table, or there's more people at the table. Because... Uh, so you, you need to sniff that out, really. So I, you know, what I try to do at a church is say, so you're really open to change. Because most churches, they'll come to me and say, well, we need a pastor to lead us into a new direction. And I said, well, I don't believe it. I don't believe you want to go in a new direction. Give me an example of where you've changed. And then I may give them a couple suggestions. I said, you need to put skin in the game. Convince me that you're willing to change some things. Mm -hmm. Um, but most churches don't want to do that. That's so true. And that, and that was the situation I told you. I went in and said, mm -hmm. you know, basically, here's where I want to go. Here's what I want to do. If that fits you guys, okay, let's make this match. Do your matchmaker illustration. I said, we'll be a, a good match if you want to go there, too. And they did. They wanted to go where I wanted to go. But once you start going somewhere that's a little different in a church environment that likes tradition, people start squirming. Yeah. Paul, from, from the perspective, Paul, of uh, a different kind of tradition, uh, what are you hearing here? Are you here? You never know on Zoom if Paul Yeah, is you never know if I see his right, picture we'll, there. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get him in. in yeah, a little bit. yeah. Um, do you think that um, there are pastors um, who would say, and would you say yourself, that, man, I left this place too early? Um, or I stayed in this place too long. And is there any mediating way that you would suggest that churches and people in churches um, who see that say, this guy needs to go versus, wow, this guy needs not to go? How do you deal with that in your own life? Yeah, for me, I I always bang my head on the wall because I I, I never thought I stayed long enough and I could never figure that out. Um, I would look at people who were in a church for 30 years and say, why can't I do that? You know, why can't I stay 20, 30 years? And, um, but then I discovered I was wired more 
prophetically. And when you're, um, I remember taking this assessment by um, Alan Hirsch on the fivefold gifts and came out like off the charts prophetic. And it basically says, well, if you last more than five years in a church, be thankful because, you know, prophets are always questioning the status quo, right? They're always pushing the envelope. And so I think for me, I needed to recognize at a younger age that a prophetic ministry is by nature short term. And, um, but then more of a shepherd, shepherding pastoral ministry, I mean, a shepherding ministry, shepherding teaching ministry can often be long term as long as a person has, um, is still learning and growing and but there are some pastors who stay well beyond their time. Um, and part of that is because we don't have strong measurements of success. We don't want to measure success. But we just want to say, well, the, only the Lord knows, especially Reformed people, right? I mean, we're so big on the sovereignty and providence of God. You know, we just preach the word and we let the Lord, the Holy Spirit, take it from there. So, yeah, but, you know, you haven't had a, you haven't had a baptism in 10 years. I mean, <laughs> right? What's so going me, on here? Okay, so let me just throw this back at your face, since a lot of people may not know what the Reformed tradition is. For us, the expression of that in Orange County was the Crystal Cathedral. Yeah, those are my people. Yeah, yeah those, those were your people, and yet I bet the controversy at the time throughout the life of the Crystal Cathedral were people within the church looking at it throwing stones, which at the mm-hmm. Crystal Cathedral is not a good thing. And people from the outside kind of a lot of times rolling their eyes and going, there's just another showman who's just, you know, whipping up a crowd. Mm. And now it doesn't exist anymore. Right, right. How much have you found people saying, see, that's what happens when you do start using measurement tools, when you do start seeing what they do doesn't last. Well, what does last? I mean, why this value of lasting? (laughs) <laughs> why, why, do we, why do we value it that a church lasts for so many years? I mean, uh, granted, you know, you're a church planter. You know, lasting five years is an accomplishment when you're a church planter. See, I get it. You know, Schuler, Bob Schuler was an apostolic kind of guy and did great things. And most of the criticism was, you know, veiled and insecure, or veils our own insecurities. But, yeah. I get that, um, but still, how do we know we're effective in making disciples if we don't have any measurements? I know, but that's what I'm getting at. I think, you know, how do not only we measure as talking as inside church people, but how does an individual measure their own struggles in the same regard? Because I know a lot of people that I deal with say, I'm really interested in spiritual things. I am not really interested in church politics. I probably already have turned off the radio or not interested in this show because that inside, you know, stuff just is not fun. I want to talk about God. I want to talk about my relationships with people. I want to talk about how this really you know affects my life and now i have kids that are saying you know do i do i want my kids to grow up in the church Mm. you know how do we get all of this stuff from getting in the way of people dealing with god (laughs) well i i think that 
going to church on Sunday, let's call it the weekly gathering, you know, is a spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. But it's one of many. So for me, if people are burnt out on the weekly gathering, fine. And you're going to find that now with the pandemic. People saying, I don't even need the weekly gathering. My hunch is someday they'll say they do. But there, there are other spiritual disciplines, as the monks taught us, right? Um, whereby a person can really cultivate their spiritual life, their walk with God, without ever entering a sanctuary on Sunday. Now, I'm not saying that's the end game. I'm just thinking, I'm going to let the Lord worry about that. You know, for too long, we just made weekly attendance like the benchmark of discipleship, of spirituality. We don't talk about fasting, mm. right? Even though G- for Jesus, it was a non- non-negotiable. So, you know, I want to get into the lives of people and say, okay, you can develop your walk with God without having to yet kind of cross that barrier into the weekly gathering. And maybe there's some other things you can do, like this podcast or, you know, reading scripture or, or prayer life. So there's other ways to get at it, I think. Gotcha. Tell yeah. me tell me a good story before we go of really matching a church that was hurting with the right person. And mm. tell me about some a turnaround or two you've seen. <laughs> I was just on the phone with a guy from originally from Guatemala, five kids was pastoring in California and accepted an invitation to join a a small Baptist church of about 30 people in Indianapolis. He moved his wife and children for a part-time job because he felt God calling him. He called me up, uh, he reached out to me just two days ago and uh, said, yeah, I I think we're experiencing some revitalization here. Before the pandemic, we were worshiping 80 people on Sunday morning. I said, praise the Lord, man. I I told, I said, Ron, you're one of the stories I tell. You know, because on both ends, you got this church thinking, you know, this ancient, old, established church, how are we going to get anybody? And then you got a guy who who flies across the nation with five kids to take a part-time job because he sensed God's calling him. And then God does a mighty work. I had another one in, uh, where I, the church called me and says, can you help us find a pastor? I said, well, I don't know. Maybe you should just close down. And then, you know, short, long story short, you know, they were worshiping about 30, 40 people. Now they're worshiping about 120 because they did the hard work of dealing with their stuff. Right. You know, they dealt with their stuff. So it happens, but the big, the big issue is what Jesus said, death precedes life. Death always precedes life. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. It's core to the gospel. Death precedes life. And there's not much hope for a pastor or a church if they don't first die to themselves. Wow, that's you know it's amazing that that's good news, right? It um, is. It is. You know the the amazing uh, twist when we understand the gospel. Mm. Sam, I, I teased you a little bit about being a headhunter, mm. but I just want to say uh, before I wrap us up here um, that what you're doing is holy work. It's important mm. work, and I, and I want to thank you because so much of people's experience with the church is at that nexus between the pastor and the congregation and and we all need help 
Um, if anyone wants to learn more or benefit from what Sam does, just go to www.chapter slash, not slash, what do you call that? Dash. dash. Chapter-next.com. Uh, yeah. Chapter-next.com. So before Com, we leave, yeah. mm -hmm. I think it's worth reflecting a bit on the biblical imagery given for pastors and congregations. Mm. It is simply sheep and shepherds. Amen. Two weeks ago, I was given a six-foot-wide by 30-inch tall painting to hang over my bed. In the forefront is a large wooden gate with a tuft of wool cut between two of the boards. In the background is a mountain range in the Snowdonia National Park in Wales, where an American B-17 flying fortress bomber was on a training flight when it crashed in a Rennick Far Peak in 1943. None of that is what the painting is about to me. The central part of the photo is bare grazing land. The sheep have moved on. None are visible. No shepherd is in the painting. You've probably heard illustrations of how sheep really do need shepherds. They're not the smartest animals in the world, but there's another side to that story. We may often act like sheep without a shepherd is a crisis, but we need to remember the shepherds need sheep too. On mm -hmm. both sides of that relationship, there can be conflict and frustration and strife. But when the morning comes, it's time to pick up, to move to greener pastures together. Thankful we all made it through the night. I know sometimes shepherds get tired of being shepherds, and sheep would prefer not to be sheep. But until the rules change, we can be thankful that the great shepherd of shepherds cares for all of us. John 10:14 in the gospel, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And it's worth a thought. This is John Bash for Churchyard Sam. Well, that was worth a thought for sure and brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts and Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement of the divine in unlikely places. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. If you'd like to find out more, come visit us at churchhurtsand.org and tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, Church Hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the and and enjoy God today, won't you?